When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Off the Post, Post Media's Hockey Podcast. I'm Paul Chapman, joined by national hockey writer, puck expert, um, expert on booing and all other things hockey. Mike uh, Tracos, how are you doing? Uh, pretty good. It's, uh, we're getting into the juicy part of the season there, Paul. Um, I think <laughs> now our teams are kind of eyeing that playoff spot. Um, we're looking ahead to the trade deadline and I think fans, like you mentioned in Toronto are getting a little bit restless and it's an interesting time, not just for the Leafs, but I think for a lot of the Canadian teams. So a lot to talk about today, hopefully. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we hear a lot about that. You go back to us Thanksgiving and everyone says, Oh, that's where you really know what you are. But I find you're right. Like this is, this is the part of the season. It's post Christmas. It's kind of around the all-star game where people are really saying, look, we either have a real shot to win this or we need a lot of help. Um, and plus, the game evolves every year, regardless of sort of how people are uh, constructing their teams and what the trends are and how things are working. Um, I know you've had your eye on the type of player that is so desired as we're going to start to talk about trades here. Uh, where do you see this going in the NHL? Who are the guys who are, are hottest on the market and and which guys are going to be the ones attracting the most attention? Well, you know, Paul, like the NHL is such a copycat league. And I think after watching how the Washington Capitals were finally able to win a Stanley Cup last year uh, by playing that big kind of bruising style of hockey, and we definitely saw it against Vegas. Uh, I covered that series. I also covered the series where they beat uh, Tampa and how that series kind of changed on ahead was you know, guys like Ovechkin and Tom Wilson were starting to run around and uh, taking uh, numbers and you know that player in Tom Wilson like love him or hate him and he does a lot of things that obviously um, go beyond the realm of um, what's well and good in hockey but you know every team would love to have a Tom Wilson and looking around the NHL and looking around as to uh, the makeups of some of the Stanley Cup contenders either got a Tom Wilson in your lineup, whether it's a Ryan Reeves in Vegas or Austin Watson in Nashville or Big Buff in Winnipeg, or you're looking for one of those guys. So, you know, like in Toronto, Mike Babcock, Babcock keeps harping on and complaining that the team doesn't play heavy enough. Well, they're in a prime position to go after a guy like Wayne Simmons in Philadelphia or uh, Carolina's Michael Furland, who just a couple of days ago dropped Austin Watson in a fight. So, you know, the days of Colton Orr, George Peros, um, Derek Bugard, um, kind of just playing two minutes a night and going into those stage fights are over. But, you know, if you can get a guy you can play on your top six um, who adds the element of grit and nastiness, I think every team is kind of looking for that guy or that element come playoff time. So those guys ahead of maybe the Stones, the Artemi Panarins and the Matt Duchesne, I think it's going to be extremely valuable as we go into that February 25th trade deadline. 
It's funny. The NHL has it. You talk, I think all sports are kind of copycat leagues and they even copy from each other at, at, at various times. Um, themes, trends, things like Moneyball, where can you get your value? We've seen the the advanced stats come in. And I know that you go back to the dead puck era and it was like, yeah, we need a superstar goalie like Martin Brodeur to carry our hopes. Easier said than done, but then it seemed to be your stud defenseman. But you're right, there's some of the guys you reeled off. It's all, if you look at Vegas, if you look at Winnipeg, if you look at all these teams that are at the top, they all have this power guy who can play because we know there's not going to be fighting in the playoffs. That hasn't happened for, for decades. It's more about right. having the skill, but also opening up space for your skill players. So I ask you this, when you look at some of the other top teams, notably Toronto and notably uh, Tampa Bay in the East, um, Stanley Cup favorites, you, you talked a little bit about Toronto. How hard is it for them to get guys who can fit that role? Yeah, I think it's extremely hard. I think it's even harder than finding a guy that quite possibly can put like 20 goals in the net. Um, because it's just not a matter of finding uh, a big lug that is going to scare the other team. Like We're past that time. Like you said, like I think the game has evolved to the point where you've got to come at it with some skill, with some speed as well. And when you look at Tom Wilson, he's a first-round pick. Austin Watson, I believe, was a first-round pick as well. Like, these guys um, spent their entire junior career putting the puck in the net and um, not just um, striking fear in the opposition with their fists and with their body checks, but with the ability to play offensively. So, you know, it, it's real hard to find that kind of blend that you're just going to throw one of these guys onto your top, uh, top line or top or second line, because, you know, a lot of cases you're disrupting uh, what has been working all year. So, it is a bit of a gamble um, and you have to find that right element. But like when you're talking about a guy like Wayne Simmons, like the guy, <laughs> this is a player who scored 15 goals, who has made a career at a playing on the power play. And yeah, he, he's not going to fight every night. I think I was looking up his stats. I don't even think he's fought even once this season, but he plays on the edge in the same way that a Matthew Kachuk plays on the edge in the same way that, um, and maybe like a Max Domi or a Brad Marchand does. And, and like a, a guy like Brad Marchand is maybe going to fight once all year, but he's going to make it real difficult for opposing defensemen and even forwards where he's going to get under the skin of guys. So uh, I think that's the kind of element we're talking about here is you know, someone that's going to maybe initiate contact, is going to um, bring a bit of emotion and passion to the game because, you know, like I, I don't know about Tampa so much, but definitely in Toronto, um, they go about their business and a very stoic kind of work-like fashion where they're beating teams maybe 6-2 or 6-3, but there's not a whole lot of passion derived from that. And then when they face a Boston or a face a Nashville or even a Colorado the other night and things start getting a little chippier, um, I'm not seeing that sort of answer. And in a seven-game series, I think you need that element. Sometimes you will see a coach who goes counter to that copycat trend and say, well, you know what? You're going to uh, you're gonna try and push us around. We'll just beat you on the power play. Is that an alternative for teams out there? Yeah, you know, and you know, Mike Babcock in Detroit, that, that was their MO for years, right? Like, I know they had the Bob Proberts back in the day, and they had uh, Drapers and McCartney, uh, McCarty, but uh, a lot of times, you know, the Red Wings refused to get that big enforcer, um, at least in the last, like, decade or so. Um, so maybe we'll see that, and maybe we'll see that out of Tampa, because, you know what? If you want to go run around and 
uh, take penalties, well, <laughs> a team like the Lightning can definitely burn you um, with their power play and with the, the personnel that they have up front. And the Leafs are the same way. It's just a matter of, you know, um, games get called a little tighter, uh, I think, in the playoffs. And those power play opportunities are fewer and far between. And I don't have to remind a, a Canucks fan out there of what happened when they faced the Bruins uh, in that Stanley Cup final where a guy like Marchand, uh, ended up being kind of a game changer, a series changer in that one, in the sense that uh, I don't think Vancouver had it, uh, uh, an answer for him. No, and it wasn't that. That was a team ethos. You're right, going back then, and I think the Canucks are still suffering trauma with the reaction to the uh, Elias Pettersson incidents that have happened two of them this year, and the the thirst for blood from Mike Matheson um, with the Panthers. But but I ask you, Mike, as as we're going to start to look. Now at the trade deadline coming up, um, if you have one of those guys that you want to, that you feel you can move, and Simmons is certainly one of those guys that seems to be mentioned daily. I even saw a Philly writer got suckered into a Photoshop tweet the other day and suggested that TSN had reported a deal had been done. Um, you know, can can you get a team to overpay? Like, if these guys are so desired, and a team like Toronto or like Tampa or one of those other teams in the West feels they need to add a heavier skill player, can you ask for the moon and get it? I think so. Just because, like, when you look at some of the top names that are out there, whether it's like I said, if Columbus, I don't know if Columbus is even going to part ways with their Tammy Panarin, but. Um, there seems to be an overabundance of skilled wingers um, available at this year's trade deadline. Like, like whether it's a, a stone or, well, Duchesne's a center, but um, there seems to be an abundance of skilled forwards. Uh, Gustav Nyquist and uh, Detroit is another guy um, where if you want a skilled guy, um, there's more than enough for everyone to kind of go away happy. But if you want to get a guy that, is going to score you uh, maybe from here, from the t- trade deadline to the end of the season, maybe another 10 goals, but also uh, create a lot of breathing room uh, for the rest of the players. Well, there's, there's only a handful of guys there. And really it's Simmons and then it's Furland and then maybe it's a Kevin Hayes. And I don't even think Kevin Hayes belongs in the same category as those other two. So um, you, you might have to overpay for that. And, you know, talking around, uh, there's a lot of teams, like whether it's like you think Boston already has enough pieces there where they don't need to scare anyone else, but apparently Boston's at the top of uh, the list in terms of wanting a guy like Simmons, and uh, we know Toronto's looking for that element, and uh, I think Tampa, I think Pittsburgh's going to be also involved in that, especially after giving away Ryan Reeves last year and uh, seeing Sidney Crosby take that hit from Matt Niskanen in that playoff series against Washington, so... Yeah, I think a lot of teams are going to be overpaying for that, uh, to use some borrow word from Brian Burke, that pugnacity and that truculence <laughs> that uh, might be missing in their lineup. Man, he's made a living off words like that, uh, too, that will follow oh, around. I, I, as a writer, I love it. <laughs> yeah, it's fantastic. Um, I, I will say this. You wonder if Boston's MO is to, well, if I get if I can get a Simmons, that means you don't get him. Yeah, that's a good point. And, you know, obviously Boston is such a top-heavy team where a lot of their damage is coming from that top line. And if they can find a winger to play with David Krejci, um, obviously they're going to look for it. Last year they get Rick Nash, who, you know, he doesn't play uh, an edgy kind of game, but at least he gave him some size. And I think I think size is still something that teams still clamor over in the playoffs because, let's face it, Paul, like, the playoffs is a grind. Like, like what works in the regular season 
doesn't always work in the playoffs. And I know we are sort of evolving and guys like Johnny Goudreau are making their mark in the NHL, but you know, come playoff time when, you know, that, that flashing call doesn't get nota, doesn't get called as much. And there's a little bit more hooking, a little bit more holding and the front of the net becomes a bit of a war zone. Yeah. You, know, you might need uh, that element. And, you know, if you don't, like I said, if you don't have a Matthew Kachuk or an Austin Watson to kind of create that breathing room for your guys, then, yeah, you better go find it because, you know, trust me, your star players are going to be more happy if you've got it. Well, I think you're right. When you talk about the grind of the playoffs, we know how much top defensive pairings get just absolutely worn down through a long playoff run. You imagine facing a big heavy guy coming in, crashing the boards on you every time over five, six games. That It's 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 more the cumulative effect than just a one-off, right? Oh, 100%. And like... The, just, I know I keep going back to Toronto just because that's the team I hear the most about and it's almost impossible not to uh, to focus on the Leafs uh, being in this market. Really, Mike, but, because like, the rest of us year. across the country haven't heard anything about the Leafs this season. <laughs> I know. I do apologize. But you know, like all last year, we kept hearing from Mike Babcock. The reason why they had a Matt Martin and a Leo Komarov in the lineup was uh, his quote was to keep the flies off. And then, you know, he doesn't use them in the playoffs. And, you know... Matthews and Nylander, they get nullified by Boston's big line and uh, by their big defensemen. And now you're going into a playoffs again. And you're saying, well, how do you make sure that doesn't happen again? And like I said, you're not going to get an enforcer there to start cracking heads. But you know, if you can initiate uh, the physicality and initiate the contact, then you might have a step on that team and you might be able to kind of fight fire with fire. And it, it's just interesting. Like, you know, Edmonton goes out and gets a Milan Lucic, and ultimately that proves to be the wrong move. But I think if you can find a Milan Lucic who can skate um, like he did when he first broke into the league and can still pop in some goals, that is possibly the most valuable player in today's NHL. Um, just because the league is getting smaller. So if you do have a big guy that can play with skill and speed, man, oh man, you've got an edge on the other team. Fantastic, Mike. So we'll end the first period there. We'll come back in the second period. We'll talk a little bit about prospects, uh, some of the young, great players out there, uh, especially looking back at the World Juniors. And then in our final segment, we will be talking about the Canadian teams uh, and really who has the best shot at the Cup and restlessness, pressure from fans, all that kind of stuff. So stick with us. We'll be right back. How's it going? I'm Dave Breckenridge. I'm the host of 10.3, Post Media's Canadian News Podcast. In every episode, we take a deeper look at major stories happening in Canada, talking with journalists who are on the ground from newsrooms across the country. So once Off the Post has you up to date with the latest in the hockey world, be sure to subscribe. You can find us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your audio. That's 10.3, Canada's News Covered. Welcome to the Off the Post podcast. This is our second period. Uh, Mike, so let's talk a little bit about the World Juniors. You were out here in BC for them. Um, obviously, first time Canada's ever hosted and not won a medal. Uh, margins are really slim in that tournament because it, it, there's, no, there's no room for error. You have one bad game, one bad goal can decide it all. I did want to ask you before we get into some specific players, through the broader lens of Canadian hockey, um, not that Finland is a real slouch of a nation in hockey. They've produced some great players over the years, but they've had some tremendous success over the last decade in terms of tournaments like the World Juniors. And certainly the Americans, you just see it where they are every year. They didn't win this year, but they got to the final. 
You look at their U.S. development program, they are producing top-end players year after year after year. Does Canada have to change its model at all when you look at that? Yeah, I don't know. That's, that's a really good question, Paul. And I, I hesitate to to say that Canada's got to really start navel-gazing again because it just seems like that's the knee-jerk reaction whenever we don't meddle. Um, and, and, you know, it's only been a year since Canada did meddle, and the year before that they finished the second to the U.S. after losing in a shootout that uh, possibly was the worst ending to, like, what was a fantastic game against the U.S. where Thomas Shabbat and Charlie McAvoy were going against each other. Um, but, you know, like, let's face it. Um, the gap has shrunk. It's not, it is shrinking. It's shrunk. Um, where some of the best players in the league now, uh, are calling every country their home. Like you go through the standings and you've got Pasternak from the Czech Republic. You've got Miko Rantanen from Finland. Um, you've obviously, uh, got a Russian and Nikita Kucherov. Uh, you've got Americans there. You've got Canadians, you've got Swedes, like, um, it is really a multinational game right now. And you, know, you see it every year at the draft where it's not a given that a, a Canadian is going to be in the top three, much less the, the top five. And uh, I, I think that's just the reality of it. Um, does Canada have to change? I don't think so because, you know, in this kind of tournament, like I would have loved to have seen how Canada did if it was a best two out of three. I have a feeling that they probably would have beaten Finland um, two out of those three games. Um, and, and they would have had a probably they would have went to the final. Um, and I think the margins were so slim there where uh, if not for a broken stick against the Finns yeah. or um, had they picked the, a different player in the shootout, maybe Canada does go to the final. Maybe they end up winning the thing or and the narrative is completely changed. And we're talking about how Canada, again, is the dominant country and um, forget about those other countries because Canada is still top. But. Um, I think it's more interesting this way, uh, to be honest. And I, oh, I like the fact that now we're talking about Finland, a, a tiny country, is producing all these players. And you look at the NHL right now, and um, you know, the best goaltender is finished in Pecorine. And like I said, Rantanen and Patrick Laine. And um, the Americans are going to have the number one overall pick in Jack Hughes this year. And, um, yeah, I, I kind of like it. As, as disappointing as it was a tournament for Canadian fans, it probably is the best thing for the actual game. Which players impressed you the most? Because it's always, you know, there's always people who have a coming out party at the at the World Juniors. That you know, often they've been drafted, they, maybe even in the first round, but they're not on people's radars. But who did you really like, and when can we expect to see them really t- take over the NHL? See, Paul, like I have a bad answer for this one because <laughs> I thought this year. Well, then that was a great question on my from, part. Yeah, no, no, it's a good question in the sense that you know, the, you know, obviously uh, this might. For any American or for any Finnish fan uh, listening to this, might say uh, this is sour grapes, but this was a dud of a tournament. It was like when you when you're asking me who the breakout player was, I can't even name one guy that I'm saying. You know what? Next year, this guy, based on what I saw at this tournament, is going to tear it up. Like there was no Connor McDavid, there was no Thomas Shabbat or Charlie McAvoy. Um, there wasn't even like a Phillips Zadina where. Last year, I was convinced that Zadina might go number two overall because of how good he looked in the tournament. Like, this was a really uh, mediocre tournament in terms of star prospects. And maybe it's because Jack Hughes, who should go number one in next year's in this year's draft, uh, was injured for half the time, or uh, that Canada really went um, with a roster that was more just kind of third-line grinders 
that we might see at the NHL level than anything else. But there wasn't a whole lot of standout guys. Like I was impressed with Ryan Paling from the U.S., who I think ended up being the the player of the tournament. Um, he's a Montreal draft pick, but you know, even for him, like what he's done at the collegiate level, he probably is going to project him to be in, uh, a number three center. Um, and another guy from Montreal. Uh, Alexander Romanov, who played uh, defense for the Russians, uh, he might have been the surprise of the tournament because um, here's a guy who was drafted in the second round, and there was a lot of criticism that the uh, Canadians took him higher than they should have, but uh, ended up showing me a lot. At the same time, it's not like I'm talking about the next uh, <laughs> Rasmus uh, Dahlin or anyone like that. Like um, I-, I was kind of surprised that there wasn't sort of that breakout star this year and that kind of went away and talking to a lot of scouts saying uh, the same thing that no one really was able to kind of take it and run with it. Like um, I remember talking to, I won't say who it was, but uh, another G or another former GM uh, who was at the tournament really kind of disappointed in how Quinn Hughes had played thinking, you know, based on what Hughes was able to do for the U S at last year's tournament as a draft eligible defenseman. um, The expectation was that he was going to sort of take over this year and, well, he played a, a, a fine game and showed glimpses of what uh, the Canucks are going to see at the NHL level next year and the years uh, after. There wasn't sort of that, you know what, this is my tournament. I should be the best player here. I'm going to take over sort of game from him. And uh, I think that that was true of a lot of guys at the NHL, or a lot of guys that are already drafted by the NHL teams that just didn't quite uh, show it consistently game in, game out. You know, that's that's a good point. I I know Canuck fans on the on the whole here had a positive reaction to Hughes because there were moments, but he did not take over games. He did not dominate. And in many ways, that's kind of like Pedersen was last year. There were a couple of highlights last year from Pedersen. You know, he was not the best player on the Swedish team last year, um, but he had a couple of moments that had Canuck fans going, wow, can you imagine if he, if he could do that in the NHL? And shocker, he has this year. Um, so it's, it's funny. I guess maybe I'm going to sound... I'm going to, you know, do the get off my lawn impression here. It's more in this day and age of seeing a Twitter highlight rather than watching a whole game and go, wow, that guy was great. But there was an, you did not have that one guy put a team on his back and say, we're going to win this game. And these are supposed to be the best kids in the world. Yeah. And, you know, to be fair, like we're talking about a two week tournament, if that. So, you know what, if you have a couple of bad games or just sort of meh games, um, it doesn't really matter. Like Mitch Marner didn't look good in his world juniors. And there's a lot of NHLers that like uh, a Matthew Barzell was basically invisible uh, the year that he went to the world juniors. And like you said, I, I covered twice, uh, both times that Pedersen was there. And I remember talking to a scout. I was like, this is a guy that everyone's really excited about. Like, I'm not, I'm not seeing it here. And he's like, well, you're seeing a snapshot of a guy. Like this isn't the full season. You watch uh, Elias Peterson during his um, season in the Swedish league, and you, you come away impressed by just the the full uh, scope of what he was doing as a player. But you plop him down into a best of best tournament where maybe playing in a different role with line mates that he hasn't seen before, and uh, he has a couple of just iffy games, and you might come away just thinking, okay, this guy's not as good as all the hype's made out to be. So. It can be a little deceiving, and some guys obviously have pumped up their um, profile because of the World Juniors, and some guys maybe you come away less than impressed. So maybe that was the overall effect that just no one was really in position to kind of grab it by 
the horns and really sort of take over the tournament because like I said coming away from that I was really unsure as to what this current crop of prospects looks like and in my eyes it didn't look uh, anything special. So Mike we talked in the first segment about how the NHL can be a copycat league certainly a few years ago it seemed like because of burning a year of the contract GMs were really wary of putting a prospect in the lineup too soon there was this thought that you had to give them ample time to be an impact player and almost overdevelop them overcook them in either the minors or back in junior but it, it seems now it's turned the other way that you will get these players if they show at the world juniors or you know that wherever they were playing the year before that they can be plunged into the lineup and have an impact. I know part of that is salary cap related as well because you get a guy at a cheaper rate, but it seems to me like GMs who are traditionally super conservative are willing to give younger players more of a shot. Yeah, and I, I still think it's salary cap related there, Paul. <laughs> I have to believe. I'm giving well, too because, much credit to them, right? Yeah. Well, I don't know. Like, obviously, there's special players, and you know, guys are coming in more prepared, and you know, the speed factor is a huge element. Where you know, young legs are better than uh, 35-year-old legs, obviously. Um, and these guys are so well coached, and they're, they're coming in so well prepared. But I do believe that coaches just have to live with the mistakes now. They, they, they're looking, our GMs are looking at their overall lineup and saying, okay, I've got three or four guys that are making 40% of the salary cap. And how do I fill out the rest of my roster? Well, you know, having three or four guys on entry-level contracts makes a lot of sense. And even if that means that I'm going to have to live with uh, a couple of ga- defensive gaps uh, for game, for game. So I think it's one of those things because it can't be that every single player is special or a generational player where he's able to step in as a 18 year old and just sort of take over. Um, I got to believe that the reason why Montreal is living with uh, the mistakes of a uh, yes, Barry uh, Kokanami is the fact that, you know, it's either him or I got to go out and pay a guy $4 million to do a job slightly better than the young kid. So let's go with the young kid and, hope for the best. And I think a lot of teams are kind of taking that same approach. Well, I might say that Jim Benning and, uh, and Peter Shirelli would say $4 million's cheap when you look at Milan Lucic and Louis Erickson and what they've got back for <laughs> those big, big veteran contracts, as you, as you point out. Um, we'll leave the second period there. We'll be back in the third period to talk a little bit about fans, booing, expectations, Canada's hopes, and more Leafs. How's it going? I'm Dave Breckenridge. I'm the host of 10.3, Post Media's Canadian News Podcast. In every episode, we take a deeper look at major stories happening in Canada, talking with journalists who are on the ground from newsrooms across the country. So once Off the Post has you up to date with the latest in the hockey world, be sure to subscribe. You can find us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your audio. That's 10.3, Canada's News Covered. All right, this is the third period of the Off the Post podcast. Mike, I know there was an incident uh, just a, a day or so ago in Toronto where frustration with the Leafs' defense, the expectations are huge in Toronto. You would think the fans are happy because it's the best team they've had in years, but I guess the expectation of actually competing for a cup rather than just getting in the playoffs means their defense is really under the microscope. Jake Gardner was the subject of that. Um what is the mood in Toronto? Yeah, the mood is almost restlessness right now. I, I think they're, you know, ever since the Leafs got John Tavares and 
let's face it, like that was the biggest free agent signing that I've seen um, really in my career covering sports. Um, that, that sent a message, not just to Leafs fans, but I think the rest of the NHL, that the Leafs were going to be a legitimate contender this year. I think they're going to be contenders even without Tavares. But when you added Tavares to a lineup that included uh, Austin Matthews, Mitch Marner, Nazem Kadri, and William Nylander when he actually did sign, um, that the, the expectation was, right, like you're not just making the playoffs and going out in the first round. This is a team that should be built to um, go at least to the conference final. And, you know, when Toronto's now going through sort of that first rough spell on the season where puck's not going in as easily as it did earlier on and um, those defensive mistakes are being exasperated because they're not getting the goaltending that they did in the past. And, you know, for the first time since really uh, the days of Ron Wilson and Randy Carlisle, uh, fans are getting on uh, the team. And, you know, this is a good thing. It's a good thing that the Leafs are in this kind of position um, if you're a Canadian hockey fan, it's a good thing that the Calgary Flames and the Winnipeg Jets are leading their division, and it's a good thing that the Montreal Canadiens are punching above their weight and um, are sitting in a wild card spot. And you know, you look at the West and sort of a wild card uh, that no one mess, really Mike, wants to win. It, it is. I, I called it a uh, a watered down Western Conference, and some fan got on me, and I just responded. I said, "Have you looked at the wild card standings?" Like. <laughs> Between Edmonton, Vancouver, and Anaheim, and Anaheim's, which, who's lost, what, 12 games in a row, yeah. these teams are only two points out of a wild card spot. Like, it is silly how bad those teams are, and yet how they're still on the hunt. And, you know, that's the funny thing is that um, this is a weird time to be sort of a, a fan of Canadian hockey because you might end up with, what, three, four, five, six teams uh, in, in a playoff spot which is just insane uh, when you think about going into the season. And we kept hearing that this is going to be a tough year for Vancouver, a tough year for Montreal, uh, possibly a tough year for Edmonton. And um, those three teams are sort of in the hunt. And then you've got three other teams in Calgary, Winnipeg, Toronto, legitimately looking at a Stanley Cup. Absolutely. Now, if you look at the Leafs, I think when Nylander came back, I, I don't know the exact standing, but they, you know, pretty much the whole first part of the season – Matthews have been hurt. They didn't have Nylander. They were neck and neck with with the Lightning. Now, Lightning have really obviously turned it on. You know, Leafs sitting as we speak, uh, a good 16 points behind the Lightning. Is there, I don't want to say panic in Toronto, but is there a desire to change something? Or is there patience that, you know what, this is just a rough patch and we will get back to where it is? Like, can you see a significant move being made? I think so, and I think you're going to see that regardless of if it was a 16-point lead that Tampa had or if it was down to, like, four points. Um, I think everyone, um, whether you're just a cursory fan or you're actually studying the lineup, realizes that the defense as it's constructed still isn't good enough. And, you know, the fact that Toronto and Boston are inevitably going to be facing each other in the first round, I think that's um, a foregone conclusion. And it's ridiculous to say that, like, coming at it in the middle of January that we already know what the matchups are going to be. I think that's really kind of caused some problems for Leaf fans because, you know, Boston's manhandled them um, this season as well as in recent playoffs. So um, you know that that matchup doesn't favor Toronto. And I think that's where a lot of sort of the frustrations coming from is that when Toronto's facing those big heavy teams, whether it's the Bruins, the Predators, or 
um, even what Colorado was able to bring. Like, that's a bigger team that I think people even realize. Um, Toronto looked very small and didn't have that sort of pushback. And I think Leaf fans are now getting worried that this is going to be another one and done. And it can't be a one and done when you get John Tavares. Uh, there's no excuse for that. And suddenly the Mike Babcock is under the microscope and Jake Gardner and the rest of the defense is under the microscope. And, you know, there's a lot of kind of worry. And it's similar to, I guess, what the Washington Capitals dealt with for years and what Columbus is kind of going through where you have a great regular season, but then you go through a juggernaut in the first or second round of the playoffs. And uh, ultimately, it's just kind of not what you did in the regular season. It's what you didn't do in the playoffs. And I think Toronto's sort of facing that. And you know, if Winnipeg goes out in the first round or goes out to Nashville in the second round, I think Jets fans are going to go through the same sort of pain and same sort of sort of criticism as to why isn't this team as good as it was in the playoffs. Has Calgary been a big enough story uh either nationally or, or across the league this year where, I mean, people knew they had good players, but second overall in the league, first in the West. And and have they been a big enough story, Mike? And do you think that they are a serious playoff force or are these guys a little bit like Columbus where a, a year or so ago where they had a great season and then just crumbled in the playoffs? Yeah, there's still something missing with Calgary. I don't know if it's the fact that they've had to rely on uh, a goaltending tandem because Mike, Smith and David Rich haven't been able to kind of grab that ball all by themselves. Um, that's caused some people uh, some worry or the fact that James Neal is just not scoring yet. But, uh, you know, talking to a lot of people, it just seems like Calgary doesn't get the same respect. And yet they might actually have the easier path to the conference final or to the Stanley Cup final than any other Canadian team. Like when you think that Toronto's got to go through Boston and Tampa Bay and possibly either Pittsburgh or Washington, just to get to the final compared to uh, Calgary having to go through what San Jose and maybe Vegas. Um, th- that's an easier match. I think if you're the flames and yet, you know, something about that team uh, just, I don't know. They're missing something. I just don't know what it is yet because they, they are playing great hockey and you're right. It's not a big enough story that the flames are sort of the best team in the West right now. Um, better than Winnipeg. I know like, the hockey news before the season started predicted that the the Flames would win the Pacific, and I thought that was way way too generous for the Flames based on uh, what I was seeing and just you know, the amount of offseason moves that they made. But you know that that top line with Goudreau, Monahan, and, and Lindholm has been as good as any other top line in the NHL. And when you've got Kachuk providing secondary offense, and uh, you've got a defense uh, headed by Mark Giordano, and um, there's just really not a whole lot of holes in that lineup. The only thing is you have to keep going back and forth between Riddich and Smith in that playoffs. And if you do, that's not a recipe for success or it doesn't tend to be when you're looking at teams that do have success in the playoffs. Yeah, plus 40 goal differential, differential which I know is more of a soccer stat, but really the only team in, in the NHL who's done better than that is uh, is Tampa. I did want to ask you about a, a couple or three in particular hot teams. So, you know, as you said, we're seeing some fluctuation at the top. Some of the Canadian teams are surprising. But, you know, San Jose getting Eric Carlson off Ottawa, a lot of people thought that was a move to to put him over the top and actually a pretty disappointing start to the season. They're now second in the West. They're 9-1 and one in their last 10. I also look at Vegas. We know what a fairy tale it was last year, and then people talked about the bubble bursting. You know, they're 8-2 and two and really moving up the charts. And then the Islanders, who you talked about Tavares, they lose Tavares. I think a lot of people thought the Islanders, even though they have Barzal, was due for a bit of a retool. And yet here they are. They're still just 
at the bottom of the Eastern Conference standings in terms of the wild card spot, but they're eight and two in their last ten as well, and have looked quite dominant in getting there. Do you is this just the ebbs and flows of the NHL season, or do you think we're seeing these hard charging teams really coming on strong and be proper contenders? Yeah, the Islanders one just for the life of me, Paul, I don't get. <laughs> like, tell me, tell me how this team is a playoff. Team I know. Right now. Like, the East isn't that bad. Like they got a better record than Pittsburgh right now. It just doesn't make any sense. So uh, I'm going to stay away from that one because I don't know. I'm just going to attribute it all to Barry Trotz and Lou Lamorello and uh, forcing everyone to get a haircut in the shape. But uh, <laughs> for the other teams, San Jose, like I thought this was where San Jose would be. Uh, I thought they were going to lead the Pacific and. It looks like they, they might overtake Calgary uh, in the next couple of weeks, just the way that they're rolling uh, between Burns and um, Eric Carlson. And that's not even mentioning uh, Mark R- R- Edward Vlasic. Uh, they've got one of the best defense uh, in the NHL, not just on the back end, but just in terms of points. I think Burns and uh, Carlson are two of their top three scorers right now. So that, that's a team that I think um, obviously they've won seven in a row. Uh, they're, they're just coming along right now um i can't who else did you mention that you mentioned oh, the islanders you mentioned the sharks in the vegas yeah you know it, vegas is a weird one like they, they finally get their bodies back yeah daphne and nate schmidt and patcheretti uh finally gets a little comfort and you're seeing what this team can do um obviously mark andre Fleury back there uh has been just such a rock and maybe he's playing a little too many games this season but you know, that's a that's a team that I I was really worried about uh, in terms of was the honeymoon that first year um, sort of mirage uh, was it going to be a mirage or was Vegas going to be able to answer back in two years in a row and this looks like it's a legit team um, uh, if they're going to have to go against San Jose in the first round that's going to be a tough opponent but yeah it, it really is interesting to see kind of you know now that we're just past the midway mark. Um, we're seeing some of these teams that were real big disappointments and Pittsburgh was another one, um, really find their rhythm and finally get, uh, into kind of a, a solid playoff spot. Yeah, it was great stuff, Mike. I know we got to let you go here. I know the all-star game is kind of coming up on your radar here. Now we can have a debate in next week's podcast about formats for the all-star game, whether we should care or not. But what intrigues me about that is you have a lot of hockey's movers movers and shakers there and they're not worried about league games at the time or dealing with all the other issues they deal with day to day. Do you think there's a bit of a recipe to see some actual league stuff happen, whether it's trades or other stuff happening next week? Yeah, that's a good question. I I think there's going to be a huge like need to kind of get a jump on things before that February 25th deadline, especially with you know, like there's a lot of teams that are still debating. Do you, do you re-sign a Mark Stone or a Matthew Shane, or does Vancouver go and re-sign Alex Edler? If not, uh, does that mean that you have to move these guys? And same thing with I guess Columbus and Bobrovsky or Panarin. So, you know, those questions have to be answered sooner rather than later. So, um, yeah, I, I do think if we don't see a trade at the All-Star Game, we're definitely going to see maybe the uh, first steps towards the trade and. It will be interesting to see. Like, there's a lot of names out there that we think are going to be at the trade deadline. But if those teams, if those players resign, then you know a lot of teams have to go to Plan B or Plan C. And it will be interesting to see what actually happens there. All right, we'll leave it there. We'll look forward to hearing your thoughts on that next week. I want to thank everyone for listening. You can download us at Apple Podcasts. Give us a rating. This is the Off the Post Post Media Hockey Podcast.